In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about managing your emotions, the cost of an MVP, and more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 433. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we made. So word this week, sir. Well, just wanted to give people a reminder that today is the last day to apply for the Starter Edition scholarships. And as I said before, we've got over 25 to give away. We will link it up in the show notes, but definitely go check it out if you're interested in it at all in coming to MicroConf Starter Edition. Just fill out the application. It doesn't take more than five or 10 minutes to do, and we will have those within the next couple of days. The notifications will go out and let people know who has been awarded the scholarships and and hopefully everybody who is able to accept them. And if not, then we'll go back to the pool and kind of go to the quote-unquote runners-up to see who else is available. Because obviously, like, some people's travel plans change or whatever. So we make sure that if we're going to give somebody a scholarship, they can actually use it. So it may take a few extra days. Yep. Head over to episode 433 on us.com for a link to that in our show notes. For me, not a ton of updates. Was on vacation and now... Looking forward to some home construction being done on our house here in Minneapolis. We bought it about eight months ago. And during the escrow process, an inspection picked up some, you know, some anomalies in the stucco. And so we we got a credit to have those fixed. And all that's fine, except for the fact that it was supposed to take two months and it's been like seven months of construction. And so things are getting put back together now, but it, you know, it just kind of wears on you and it can be loud. I mean, you and I have recorded in the past few months and I'm having to mute and we have to edit out things and there's people in my house all the time. And so really looking forward to that being done. And I think the the internal stuff, because they, they had to replace some windows and, and restucco things and they, they can't restucco things because it's too cold right now. So they have to wait. So there's scaffolding and such that'll still be up for another, I'm guessing another month or two until it warms up. But at least if the inside can be completely done and all the outlets work again, you know, because they had to, they had to rip receptacles out and turn the power off on certain parts of the house. You just, given that two of us work from home and we homeschool a kid, like a lot of us are home a lot of the time, you know, it's hard to not, I mean, I think if I was going into an office, it would almost be be easier because it would just be done while we're not here. But when I'm talking to you on this podcast and then two construction workers walk in and like start painting the walls, it, I'll admit it's a little distracting. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. So looking forward to that. I, then that's really in the in the kind of end game right now um, of they're just putting trim on things and, and hanging blinds and such. So I'm very much looking forward to uh, to getting past that. Yeah. Like having to redo anything in your house just really sucks. <laughs> it's just the worst. Yep. Always costs more than you. It's like software. Always costs more than you want it to. It always, you know, it takes longer to do than you think. Yeah. Cool. So what are we talking about this week? Well, we have some listener questions. We're going to kick us off with a voicemail. As always, voicemails rise to the top of our listener question stack. And this is a good question about the emotional side of running a startup and what to do when you make a change and it makes people angry, how to handle that. Hey, guys. It's Dan Dingman from uh, Philadelphia. I run a company called Commit Swimming. It's a small SaaS app product. And recently I raised prices and I'm looking to hear your guys' thoughts on some feedback that I've gotten. 
I thought I did everything that I could to properly communicate to customers like that the price increase was coming, why it was happening, and kind of like, you know, what it was going to be. And then I also communicated clearly what it was then a couple months later. Um, and I've inevitably, with like about 1,500 paying subscribers, I've gotten a few pretty nasty emails back on the topic. And it's one of those things that I just feel kind of down as a founder. You know, it's not, it wasn't like a money grab situation. It was in order to pour more money into developing features for the same customers that I'm serving. And like that type of emotional kind of backlash can t really take a toll. And I'm just curious to have a discussion around um, and hear, you, hear Mike and Rob's thoughts on what situations have you come across that kind of has made you feel like, oh, like, did I do something wrong? How can I right this wrong? And how do you deal with that internally um, as a founder with all that kind of emotional baggage kind of riding on you, either in the sales process or in a situation with increasing prices or dissatisfied customer, that feeling that you just kind of messed up and you disappointed somebody, how do you handle that internally? And then how do you try to make it right with the customer? I'd love to hear your thoughts in particular about the emotional side of it. So thanks again for everything that you guys do. I love your podcast. I love everything that you have done so far for the community. And I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this. Thanks, guys. Bye. So price increases, huh, Mike? Nothing ever goes wrong with those. Of course not. <laughs> uh, so this is a good question, man. I, you know, it, it obviously... We could talk about the price increase specifically, but that's not you know not really his question. It's just like, what do you do when people get mad? And did you do something wrong? Didn't you? And how do you deal? You know, how do you deal with all that? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so I think that there's the one piece of advice I'd have that kind of trumps everything else is like context matters here. So if you were to like take a few steps back and try to be extremely objective about what the situation was and what happened, does it make sense for people to be extremely angry? And the like the number of people has a, a big impact on it. He said he's got 1,500 paying subscribers. Well, how many nasty emails did you get from that? Was it five or was it 500? Because that's a big difference. Yeah. He, he said it was only a couple, right. which is an indicator, right? Exactly. And that, that was kind of my point was that when he said he only got a couple of emails, to me, that says that it's probably not a big deal. And that's that's only partially related to his question because his question is really like, how do you deal with the emotional side of it? But my point here is that I, you should take a few steps back to make sure that you're being objective about how you address the situation, how you brought it to them, how you let people know, and then is their response justifiable? And if it was 500 people complaining, then obviously that means you probably screwed up. If it's only a couple, and even if they're extremely vocal and extremely upset over, it's probably not your fault. And I'll point to an email that I got literally two days ago from Backblaze saying, hey, just wanted to let you know, we're raising our prices. And they're raising them from $5 a month to $6 a month. I literally just got done using Backblaze to make sure that my entire machine was backed up and going through and pulling down files that I wasn't sure whether or not would be included in my in the backup that I did here at home. And like, I, I'm extremely happy with it. So when I got this email saying they're going to increase it from $5 to $6 a month, that's technically a 20% increase. But at the same time, I am ecstatic with that. Like, heck, you could raise it for, to $7.50 and I really would not care. And I would like, I would pay you right now again. And they even have a, a button there inside the email that says, hey, you can purchase an extension and essentially grandfather yourself in for the next two years 
at the original pricing that we had put forth back in 2008. But they went through and they laid out their entire justification for it. So again, like that's that's actually like a little hack that I would say you can offer to them to extend their current pricing by you know a predetermined amount of time. If there were five or ten people who emailed you and they were extremely upset about it, it has nothing to do with you. It's about them. It's about their situation. It's like whatever you did was like the straw that broke the camel's back. It has nothing to do with the specifics of what you did or how you could have done things differently. It's there's probably something else going on there that you didn't know about, you couldn't have known about. And quite frankly, there's nothing you could have done about. I probably wouldn't worry about it if it fell into that category. Yeah. I mean, there's, there are rules of thumb when doing price increases specifically. And we've talked about them on the show. I had a tweet storm about it three, four weeks ago. And I don't think that's the point of this question, right? The point really is what you said, which is gathering context and trying to look at it, trying to look at it rationally when it's an emotional response that we all have, right? Because we relate to other people. We want to do well. We want to do right by our customers. And so if you get even one or two really nasty emails, it can bring you down, even if you did everything right, everything as right as you could possibly do it and communicated it well and all that stuff. So just at any point when you make a person or some people angry, I think the things that that I always remember is to number one, to apologize. Number two, if it really is a super small minority, then to hold, to hold your ground. I mean, that's, that's something, I mean, you could always evaluate it. If someone says, Hey, I've been a customer for 10 years and, and, and I recommended all these people and I use it when I teach my class at this college or blah, 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 then maybe, maybe you do make an exception. But overall, if it's just someone who's just angry because you're doing something that you need to keep your business afloat or you need to continue running your business, then you probably just need to apologize and be like, hey, maybe there are other opportunities. Maybe there are other options for you. Because that is what I've found over the years is the people who tend to get all huffy about things get huffy about everything. And they're the most vocal ones. And they're frankly people who you would rather not have their money. And I would rather have them use a competitor. That can be something that that you suggest to, to folks. But that doesn't cover really his question, which is how do you handle it mentally and emotionally? And I think there's a few coping strategies that that I've learned and, and developed over the years. The first thing is not, try not to take it personally. Easier said than done, but really step back and say, look, this person doesn't know me. They don't know what's going on. Like they're just typing stuff. They wouldn't say this to my face, you know, at, at a conference or whatever. So that's the first thing. Second thing is get a sanity check on it. This is something I would bring up in my mastermind group and I would throw this out. Hey, this is what happened. And this was the email. It was brutal. You're going to have camaraderie. You're going to have that community of people who are saying, yeah, this happened to me too. And then it normalizes the experience, right? I've actually gotten, I mean, frankly, let's say a couple times a year, I'll get an email from a founder who's like, oh my gosh, this person is totally railing on me on Twitter about XYZ. Tell me what I should do or like help me or, you know, whatever. And I will basically give them advice like, yep, this has happened to me. This is how you deal with it. It it sucks, but it happens to all of us. If you're doing anything interesting out in the world, you're going to have people get mad about something at some point. And that's not a justification for pissing everybody off all the time. But once in a while, you're going to do something or say something or make a move that's going to do it and realize that that comes with doing interesting things and realize that it's par for the course and it's something you have to develop a thicker skin about. So, I mean, those are the basic coping strategies and that's, that's probably what I would, what I would do. I would also not, you know, I don't send flippant or, or rushed responses. 
boomerang or snooze those emails for a day to give yourself time to think about it. Don't ruminate on it. Don't sit there and stress about it constantly. It's not as big of a deal as you think. And then I think on the flip side is if you did the pricing change and you had 100 people email you, or you know, like you said, Mike, 50 or 100, well, then realize that you may have done something wrong and try to figure out what that is. is. Is this really unfair? Or did you just not communicate it well? Can you go back and communicate it better? Or do you need to back away? Do you need to undo it? Intercom did this, I don't know, three, four years ago where they were going to double or triple their prices and they grandfathered for six to 12 months and people were furious and it was a huge uproar and they actually backed down and they didn't raise their prices then. And then I think they just, I think they raised them like two years later and they did the same thing, but they communicated it better, you know, and it still made people mad, but don't give them an excuse to be mad because they're going to be mad about a pricing change anyways. So, you know, check the boxes of we grandfather if you can. And then if you can't, then you really got to communicate why the product is better. I mean, there's, there's all these steps in mitigation to raising prices that, that I would do, but really it's, it's with experience and going through this a few times, you just learn to not take it so personally and to, to try to get a realistic gauge of Anytime anyone's mad, it doesn't mean you're wrong. You know, that's the thing, right? Is it's like a lot of us take that on like, oh, someone's mad at me. I did something wrong. That's not necessarily true. There are people who were just mad about everything all the time. And today is their day to be mad at you for something that frankly probably is better for all of your customers in the long term. Because if you have more money to keep the business afloat and to build the app out and, you know, whatever else... And if no one else had an issue with it, like you said, Mike, with, with crash plan, five to six bucks, you just don't care. Like Netflix raised their prices a dollar. I just don't care because it's a good service and I'm going to keep it and I'm not going to get in this fake outrage over, you know, over $12 a year. Another strategy, like if you have objectively determined that you are not at fault and it is really the other person there, not you, you can kind of step away from those things and hand, like if it's uh, emails that have come in, hand them to a support rep and say, just, you know, respond to this as nicely and politely as you can. And that way you're not the one who is, you know, like suffering the mental anguish over having to respond to those because you've honestly got other things to deal with in the business than replying to a support email from somebody who is going to cancel anyway. So thanks for that question. I hope our thoughts were helpful. Our next question is from Rodrigo Pontes. And his question is, should I target the manager or the company? He says, longtime fan, first time caller. Actually, he said first question, but long time, first time. Have you heard that, Mike, on like the morning DJ stuff? Yeah, I have. Long time, first time. Long time listener, first time question asker. I am a solo founder bootstrapping a SaaS web app called One One Meeting. And it's O N E. Onemeeting.com. One One Meeting is a note-taking app exclusively for one-on-one meetings. It allows you to register meeting notes, commitments, and goals, and share it between the leader and the team member. So it's specifically one-on-one between managers and people that report to them. What should I do in my early marketing efforts? Target individual managers that could buy One One Meeting for their own use, or target HR executives that could implement it in the whole company? For more details, I have two paying customers that bought it for their own use, and I have about five colleagues of my day job employer on a free trial and a scheduled meeting with our VP of HR to demo it and try to sell a corporate account for my whole company. I'm still at my day job, so I have limited time to do sales and in-person presentations during work hours. What are your thoughts? This is one of those questions where 
I'm not necessarily the target market, so my advice here should be taken with kind of a grain of salt. I think like if I were to say one way or the other, you should target this one or that one. The reality of the situation is I don't really know. But what I would say is that there's a couple of different ways I would try and find that out. And I, I think that the question or the point about having limited time to do sales and personal meetings right now is kind of a limiting factor. I would go try to go outside of your current network and go to, as you said, like the the colleagues of your day job employer, go find out information from those people and try and narrow down as quickly as possible which of these two you should go after. And then from there, you also want to branch out and ask every single person who's using it if they would introduce you to somebody else who might be a good fit for it. If you can get three introductions, that's great. Always ask for three, settle for one, but push for that one. Because if they're not willing to, I mean, this is a one-to-one meeting note-taking app. So if they're not willing to introduce it to one other person, then they're probably not willing to actually use it to have these meetings anyway. So I would I would go down that path and try and figure that out. The other thing I would comment on is that because it's so early on, I don't know if you really know what your pricing model is actually going to be yet. So like individual plans versus corporate plans, I think those are kind of up in the air and exactly what the pricing around those should be. All those things are just, I feel like it's too early to tell. I, I seem to think that like you need to go down a little bit further in the rabbit hole and try and figure out where it's going to resonate and get traction before you start focusing on one or the other. This wouldn't normally be a clear-cut decision except for the fact that he says his time is limited during the day. And I think that if you go after HR execs, they're getting so hounded by people trying to sell them stuff that they really are going to require a lot of hand-holding and a lot of proof to push it through. And I feel like you should go with the more guerrilla approach like Slack and Dropbox do where they kind of infiltrate you know, at a lower level in the org chart. And then once you have a bunch of people using it, then you kind of ring them up and you say, hey, I noticed that you have 10 different managers using this. You want to have good management of this and insight and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, you need to get our enterprise account. And I don't know if that means that it needs to be free, you know, for the for one manager at a time or whatever. I mean, you look at Slack and you look at Dropbox and that's that's how they're able to do that is that people can sign up essentially without a credit card. And so you can really infiltrate the org that way. Or if managers have, you know, you have to find out if managers have a credit card with some type of limit on it so that you can make it relatively inexpensive, but, you know, that that once you actually do sell the account to the, the VP of HR, that there would need to be a big step up in price because selling a product like this, it's, it's going to be hard to scale it at a really low, um, well, it's going to be hard to scale it at a low price, although if you do per seat pricing, then it should naturally scale itself, right? Because the companies tend to, successful companies tend to be growing anyways. And if it works, they're going to want to add more and more of their teams onto it. So I, I could see a, you know, the whole $3, $5, $7 per seat pricing working if you can get 50 100 to 100 people at an org using it. So all that to say, if I were in your shoes, I would personally go after the managers because I think the managers are the ones that are going to get the value out of it. Managers are the one, are the person whose pain point it really solves in the most direct way. And the managers are the ones that can start implementing it without a bunch of bureaucracy and approvals and all that stuff. And if they can just kind of run wild with it and prove it out, then it's a much, much easier sale as you go up the chain. So thanks for the question, Rodrigo. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is about taking someone's business idea. And I'm going to leave him anonymous. It's interesting. He says, 
A little background about me. I have a bachelor's of science in computer science and business administration. I've been working in IT since 2006 as a developer and a manager. Two years ago, I worked for an online company that I found to be really interesting and right up my alley. I applied. I got hired on as a developer to help maintain and update their current website come to find out that the new site was never going to see the light of day due to the fact that the manager overseeing everything wanted to keep adding useless features to the site. The site was from the 90s and was written in a language that is no longer supported and it can't support more modern features that a growing business website needs. This really bugged me, so I left the company. Then one day I was talking to a friend over drinks and he said I should start my own thing. So I did, and from there it snowballed into a reasonable product that I think I can take to market. So my question is, when I started with the company, I had signed an NDA and a non-compete valid for one year after I left. And that one year mark is coming up in the next week. I want to start pushing content out to get things going. I didn't work on anything on the side while I was there, and I'm not using any code or tech from the company because I consider that stealing. Everything I've created is 100% from scratch and of a different language and technology stack than the one at the prior company. Have you guys ever had to deal with anything like this, looking at it either from my point of view as the startup or as the, the old company with the 1990s website? I also want to say a huge thanks for sharing your experiences. You've answered a lot of my questions on your podcast. What do you think about this, Mike? Do you, do you fully understand what he's asking? I mean, he's, he's basically, he's kind of launching a competitor to something and, and they have outdated tech. I guess he's, I don't think he's asking ethical question, right? Because I think he's going to do it. It's more the legal side of it. Like, can they sue him? Well, I, I think that a lot of what he said seems to be different from what he's actually asking. So my understanding of what he had said was he was hired to help develop and maintain this the current website of the of this other company, and he signed an NDA and a non-compete, but then he left, and it's coming up on a year later for his NDA and non-compete no longer being valid, and the product he wants to build is what the company was developing. I don't think that it's actually anything related to the website for that company. I think it's like, that's what I'm confused about. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I, I gather is the situation is what he's building is actually what the company itself produced. And that's his non-compete would be wide enough to cover whatever their product was. And is the product that he's building is, you know, that, although he was hired to build, just work on the website. All right, let's go with that assumption because I was confused as to like, was the website the product or what, you know, is it, is, right. is it just like a lead, you know, like a lead gen company, the website is, is the product, right? There is no product behind it. You just drive ads or you do SEO and then you get people to sign up in a form and then you basically can sell those leads. So that's what I was thinking, but maybe there is a software product behind it and he's replicating that. So yeah, what, what do you think here? Well, I mean, there's the there's the fine line between what is legal and what's not, in which it's hard for us or impossible for us to kind of comment on the specifics of that. Like if it, if we weren't in that situation, I have been in this exact situation. I was in the situation with Audit Shark, where I basically knew that the product that I was rebuilding from scratch was going to go away at some point in the future. And my thought was, if I were to rebuild it, I could essentially come in and replace the product that was being end of life. And what I found was that the fear of being sued by a large company that has the ability and, and the resources and the lawyers that are just on staff already was paralyzing. And it's like, that is always going to stick in the back of your mind. 
and you will not get away from it. I don't know how big they are, or I don't know what they do, or I don't know how much of an impact you would actually have on them. But for me, it was paralyzing. And I had a very hard time separating the business and marketing and stuff that I was doing. My situation was probably complicated because I was also still doing consulting work for them. There was, you know, it wasn't really a non-compete because I was a separate company anyway, but I was a subcontractor for them. So I was barred from going back to like those existing companies that I'd already done consulting work for, which was installing this other software, but then I'm also building a replacement for it. And it's just mentally, it's very difficult to get past that. I won't say that the easier route is to just go in a completely different direction, but if you have the domain knowledge and expertise and you think you can execute on it better than them, by all means, just be prepared that if you do a good enough job, at some point they may decide to come back and, and sue you, but they can sue you anyway. I mean, they can sue you and say, well, you developed this IP that we own and, and any company that you have left could theoretically make that claim. doesn't mean it'll hold up, but that's going to be an issue that you're going to have to just kind of reconcile and come to terms with. Is, is it realistic that they could do it? Is it going to happen? It's probably not, but it could. And then there's the other side of the coin where if you do a good enough job, they may decide, hey, this is going to be better. It's going to be better for us to acquire this than to continue building the thing that we have in-house. That's an entire, you know, That's entirely possible as well. But again, it's probably just as likely as them suing you. But it's something you're just going to have to mentally deal with and make a decision and move on because otherwise you're going to spend far too much time thinking about it and not enough time actually working on the business. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's it's weird because the, this does get back to the ethical, moral conversation we had a couple episodes ago. I think that legally, if you document everything and you really are on the right side of the law, then you should be okay in the long run, but they can still sue you and you still have to hire a lawyer to defend yourself. And you still have to either negotiate a settlement or go to court, which is very expensive. And you still have to prove all this. In, you know, I mean, there's a lot of ifs. Like even if you're on the right side of the law, in my you know distant third-hand experience with um, working at companies where lawsuits are going on, no one wins but the lawyers. You know, the only ones that make money are the lawyers. I mean, it's really not, it's not good to get involved in that. So that's always my thought with with lawyers and lawsuits uh, is to really kind of be on the right side of that. And then there's the side of it that I think about as an entrepreneur is like, is this interesting to you to build this or will it be boring? You know, is it just an opportunistic view of like, hey, I can make some money with this? Or is it like, no, this is actually something I really, really want to do? Because I would... I would caution against doing something just because you saw it work at a different company and you feel like you could build better tech than them because that's not a recipe for success. It might work, but if you have taken their success as, you know, as a reason to not do customer development and not build an email list and not make sure there's demand and not make sure that you have the credibility to do this, I think you're making a mistake and I think you could build a product and release it to crickets or it could be years and years of toil on this. And does that sound like fun? So I, I would ask, just like any other product I would launch, I would ask myself, is there really a market here? And am I the one to do this? And does this sound interesting to me? Yeah, I would second the opportunistic nature of something like that, just because there's, and if it's already an established business and they are doing their sales and marketing and getting customers, it's very easy to think that you can replicate some of that. And there's, it's like an iceberg. There's tons and tons of things that go on under the 
covers of the business that you have absolutely no knowledge or exposure to. And a lot of times some of these things are very relationship driven and you don't even know it because you're not there or aware of how those conversations even happen. And it's just, it's very difficult to compete in those situations. So just be very cautious about that. Yeah. Like you said, it's, it's easy to be inside a business and look around and be like, see everything wrong with it and be like, I can do this better, but it's actually really hard to do it better. You know, this is not, it's not something that can, can happen overnight and just building better tech isn't, in my opinion, going to be the, the key to that. I think the other thing to think about is, you know, you use the term taking someone else's business idea. It's a trip that if you hadn't worked for them, you would just be a competitor. You know, it's like, did Drip take MailChimp's business idea, you know, or did Drip take Infusionsoft's business idea because it comp- competed with them? Well, no, we did our own thing our own way. We found customers, we we got feedback, and then we implemented features and, and blah, blah, blah. And so, the but the, the difference here is you worked for them and you saw inside the business. And so, there is, there is complexity there where I think that if you're going to compete with them, that you need to get over the thought that you took their business idea. I, I think it comes back to what you said, Mike, is that it's going to hang over your head mentally. And I think there's going to be, whether you're thinking about the legal side of it or you're just, you know, have this internal embarrassment or shame that you, you quote unquote, took it, stole it, you know, is kind of what, what you're implying. If you hadn't worked for them, that wouldn't be the case. You know what I mean? And if you think you're going to hang on to it like that and constantly think that you've you've taken this business idea from them, I would caution you against perhaps doing this and and would just ask you to, to think about it because it can get in your head. I mean, more than half of being a successful founder, I believe, is just dealing with the mental side of things and being able to handle your own psychology and understanding yourself and not just not stressing out and not putting a bunch of burdens on yourself and not having things that aren't true be running through your head, that negative self-talk. And this could be a source of that. So I would, I, in your shoes, I would really think hard about whether you can mentally get over that hurdle of thinking that potentially you, you know, took this business idea because you don't want that hanging over your head for the next several years as you build this out. So thanks for the question, Anonymous. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is about how to approach a B to C company. And this is a long email, so I'm going to summarize it. He says he's a huge fan of the podcast, started listening about five years ago. He's a senior developer. He's always had the product itch. And he's working on an app. It's called VidHug, V-I-D-H-U-G, VidHug.com. Started as a scratch-your-own itch project for his mother's birthday. And it's definitely B2C. It's low LTV. It's non-recurring revenue. He says, I feel like I have a mini Rob on my shoulder most days saying, what are you even doing with this? Question mark, exclamation point. Thing is, I don't really have a counterpoint for you except for a feeling. And that feeling comes from talking to customers that are now able to do something they previously could not. And so the idea with VidHug is you can send out an email with a link and, and people can record basically you know birthday wishes or well wishes and they all get combined into this 30 second or 60 second video. And so if you go to vidhug.com, you can see samples of these videos, but it's someone's birthday and then you know their grandkids and their their kids and their aunts and uncles or whatever all record it and, all, and it all gets mashed up. And he said he launched it in July 2018 to Crickets. He didn't do any pre-marketing. He got a few paying customers, didn't really get a break until earlier this year when he got some organic traffic flowing from a referral in a blog post. He's on pace to do $600 a month, and that's a funnel he can now improve. 
And he says, I'm also trying to build a B2B side of the business, and I found a potential application of remote and distributed companies using VidHug to celebrate employees or onboard new employees. I've got three companies trying this out. I tried validating a separate B2B site for this, but I think it was spreading myself too thin, and I'm just going to go down with you know vidhug.com for now. The plan moving forward is to focus on growing organic channels on the B2C side through SEO and referrals, and also build a B2B side, which would bring recurring revenue. Do you think I'm crazy for even trying this? And just as a point of data, he has basically a free tier, and then he has one that is $15, and it's a one-time thing for the B2C side. What do you think, Mike? Well, to answer his question directly, am I crazy for even trying? The answer is yes. Uh, it's just a matter of how crazy we all are. Exactly. So. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a spectrum, it's just huh? varying degrees, yep, yes. Yep. I feel like it's a little bit early on trying to be trying to separate and go after both B2C and B2B. You know, it seems like the the revenue is a little bit low and I feel like the the marketing channels you have to reach out to and the type of audience and the types of content that you have to build for them and the feature set and all these other things, it feels like it creates two different businesses that, and I get like where he said, you know, he tried validating a, a separate B2B site for the application and felt like he's spreading himself too thin. But it seems to me like you're going to kind of do the same thing if you try and cater to a B2B market as well. And maybe not, maybe you can just like feature gate it with certain types of things or multiple user accounts, for example. Maybe there's just a an obvious way to upsell people into a more B2B version of the app. So maybe that's maybe that's the way to go for that, but it does seem like it's a little bit early. So going back to the question of, you know, are you crazy for trying something that's B2C? I, I would say no. Like, I I definitely think that there are opportunities out there for people to build B2C businesses that are solid and profitable. It's just a matter of making sure that you are, you know, methodical about, you know, how you pursue your different traffic sources and putting people on your mailing list and optimizing the, the product itself for revenue and getting people into it and making them happy. And if you can do those things, it doesn't matter whether it's B2B or B2C, like you're still going to have happy customers who are going to give you money. But that's that last piece of it is the key part. Like they have to be happy and give you money because if they're not giving you money, then, you know, you don't really have a business. And that's the, I think that's the challenge that most people run into with B2C companies is that your LTV tends to be much lower and you need a larger number of customers in order to make it work. But if you can get those viral components, and there, there are a lot of viral components to something like this, like you can email out to a bunch of people and, you know, if one person gets in there and they email 50 people, now you're in front of 50 people instead of just one. Like that's a that's a huge viral aspect that a lot of things that try to do B2C don't necessarily have. And because this has that kind of baked into it, that's an encouraging sign. It's not like the only thing I would look at, but it's definitely encouraging. Yeah, this it's tough because... B2C is is just hard. It's just a different game. With this customer lifetime value, you can't run ads. You can't pay salespeople. You can't, you know, there's so many things you can't do. So it literally be outreach to bloggers and, and offering it free to bloggers and sponsoring bloggers. And I keep saying bloggers, podcasters, whatever, people with audiences. You know, if if you got, here's the thing, if you got a bunch of, of Instagrammers with huge followings, YouTubers, bloggers, podcasters, yeah, it, it would be possible to grow this. But it's a completely different playbook 
than what we typically talk about or what you're going to hear from, you know, from microconf speakers, for example, or, or in the traction book, right, where it really is more focused on doing a lot more uh, B2B stuff. So you just have to ask, your, ask yourself, is that what you want to do? You know, do you want to do you want to build those relationships with influencers and figure out how to get them to do it and then talk about it? I mean, that would be my playbook for this. Personally, I don't enjoy that. You know, it's just not something that has a lot of, A, it's hard to do without the existing relationships. B, it, it can be expensive to sponsor them. It may, it's pretty risky. It's not super repeatable. You just got to go one to the next. There's just there's just a lot to it. But you got to ask yourself, hey, is this, is this something I want to do? And if not, then I would look at the B2B side. The tough part is it's not a critical must-have thing, but I do think it's it's kind of clever and it's kind of, it's a fun, nice to have that I have seen larger companies, even companies of 50 or hundred people do special things when they onboard new people and make funny videos to welcome them or things like this. And so while I don't, I don't know if they would pay for it. And I think that'd be a question you'd want to start having with people before you dug into the B2B side. That's certainly, you know, it is, it is a more repeatable thing, but I, I still, I think there's, just a lot of risk. I don't, I don't know. I don't see an angle here. And that doesn't mean that there is no angle because frankly, with a lot of these kinds of, of apps that are, that are different or unique, or it's really, they're just a feature, right? I mean, this is just one feature. It matches up some video. It's cool, but it's not a suite of things. And it's not something that people will use every week and rely on. It's going to be harder. You know, it's not going to be the core of, of the HR's workflow or the core of a manager's workflow. It's just, it's, it's a nice to have. And I think that's the other thing to think about is I had businesses in the early days that only made a thousand a month, 2000 a month. And frankly, I learned a lot from them. It was a stair-step approach, you know, and I learned how to whatever, run ads and do SEO and do display ads and do AdWords and that kind of stuff. And I took that experience with me to the next thing. So in its current incarnation, do I think VidHug can be a, you know, a mid six figure business? I don't. And it's just my opinion, right? It doesn't mean I'm right or wrong, but I, I don't see an angle there as it stands today. But then again, I could have said that about Drip the month it launched because it was just a, an email capture form and autoresponders, you know? And, and then we kept pivoting and grinding and customer developing and slow launching and doing all the things that you heard me talk about on this podcast over the years and eventually got it, you know, into the well into the seven figure mark. And so, that's the thing is is as it stands today, VidHug is a, it is a cool side project, and frankly, I'm I'm impressed that you've gotten it to six hundred dollars a month, you know, given the price point and all that. But I think it depends on how you're thinking about it. If you think about it as good learning and you want to build it up to a grand, two, three grand a month, that to me seems doable, and it'll be learning and it'll be a little bit of income. I don't know how you you would ever get it past there. Maybe you'll eventually come to the point where you see an angle to do that. I also had a lot of businesses that never did. You know, I had ebooks and info products, and I had um, e-commerce site, and I had small software products, and I had one-time software products, and all of those topped out, and I could never get them past, let's say, between five hundred and five grand a month. I had several that, that were in that range, and eventually, I either sunsetted them or I sold them as I moved on to bigger things. And so, my gut is that VidHug will fit into that that space, that role in your entrepreneurial career. And there's a, certainly a time and place for those. And you just got to figure out, I think, how you're thinking about it and, and where you want it to take you. So thanks for the question, Zamir. That was a, a fun one and certainly wish you the best of luck uh, as you're moving forward with, with VidHug. At this point, we are completely out of questions. 
Zero questions, Mike. Zero. Zero. I have a question for you. What's your question? If Elon Musk actually gets us to the point of taking us out into the uh, outer reaches of outer space, where do you think that we should go first? Mars? No, I mean like outside, well, not just outer space, like out of our solar system. Where do you think we should go first? I have no idea. I don't know enough about like astronomy to know what's interesting. Well, do you know which like the star cluster is the closest? Alpha Centauri? It is. Do you think we should go there? Sure. I, I don't think so because I, I checked online. It's only got three stars. Boom! Boom! <laughs> there it was. <laughs> if you have a question for us, you call it into our voicemail number, 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupsforrestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsforrestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.